Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to Girl on Fire podcast on the Believe Network, New York's number one podcast network for personal growth. This is your host, Kirsten Franklin, and on this week's show, All right, guys, she's been called a disruptor, innovator, sustainability provocateur, and cultural protagonist. Her main stage TED Talk, Paper Beats Plastic, How to Rethink Environmental Folklore, has been viewed over 1,400,000 times to date. She's a sociologist, entrepreneur, developer of the disruptive design method, and founder of Disrupt Design, the unschool. Please welcome the award-winning designer and UNEP Champion of the Earth, Dr. Layla Argeralu. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the TED Talk, eye-opening, mm-hmm. okay? Love it because I think it's going to shock the hell out of all the people where we're all thinking we're doing so good, right? We're thinking, oh yeah, like we're, okay, yeah, I'm going to choose this. And especially, I live in Manhattan. We just banned paper bags. <laughs> which paper or plastic bags? Plastic, sorry. Yeah, plastic bags, yeah. just like LA. You know, we did a little bit different. Like LA, you can still get them, but they charge you. Here mm-hmm. in New York, they're completely banned, right? Yeah, um, so bags are one of those things that evoke a lot of emotional reactions in people. <laughs> um, and something I didn't know when I did that TED Talk, uh, which was now like six years ago, based off this scientific assessment, life cycle assessment, which looks at the whole of life environmental impact of a product. And what it shows is that the impact of carrying groceries home from the supermarket, which is the reason why we use bags, in a disposable way, so using plastic or paper, you need more paper than plastic to do it. So that's why there's a bigger impact because you have a net material, um, a gross material amount that has an impact. Um, and of course, like plastic is far more damaging at the end of life, but paper has a much greater impact at the beginning of life. And so when you look at the full picture, you realize that uh, based on these facts, you end up with a bigger net environmental impact. But what's fascinating is two things here. One, the issue is disposability, right? Full stop. That's the issue that we're trying to tackle. And any of these stories, whether it be the the fact that paper cups are also not recyclable and contaminate recycling are just as tragic and have a bigger amount of environmental impact than a plastic alternative that could be recycled, is that we've designed disposability into our systems and it's become so normal and ubiquitous that we don't question that aspect, that we just swapped more one disposable problem for another. But get this, I have new information. So... I did that TED Talk six years ago and I didn't know this, but the guy who designed the original plastic bag, Mm -hmm. he was an innovator for, yes, for a petrochemical company, like um, one of the companies that makes plastics in like the 1960s. But his whole thing, according to his son, was he was trying to solve another environmental problem of that day, which was, wait for it, land clearing for paper bags and the environmental destruction. So the issue that he tried to solve by making a lightweight, reusable, because plastic bags, if you you can crunch them up and put them in your pocket, his theory apparently was like, this is awesome. This is going to solve this big problem of, you know, deforestation from millions of paper bags. And of course, paper bags as well, certainly back then, you had to carry them. Like we see them in the old movies, right? And now (laughs) here's the other problem. 
when you get a paper bag instead of a plastic bag, they're not as durable. So you double or triple bag them. When I used to live in the US, I would have like literal meltdowns in in grocery (laughs) stores where they were putting two or three bags inside each other. I'd be like, do you not understand what you're doing? (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, Here's this complex system. And what we try to do as humans is just make it really simple by banning something or swapping something out. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that's interesting because that is the perspective. I mean, and it doesn't matter like whether it's fake fur, right? Like, Mm -hmm. okay, we're going to save all the animals and not kill them in such an inhumane way. So we're just going to make plastic fake fur. Right. So, and then even the, even, you know, if you're looking at the impact of even the recycling process in and of itself, right. So there's a lot of things that we don't take into consideration, Um, but now talk to me. So, you know, you have developed something called the disruptive design method. So Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about that. What is that? Sure. Yeah. So my background is I'm a designer and a sociologist. And so I'm really interested in the wacky, wonderful world of humans and how we are, um, you know, motivated to do the certain things that we do, like buy stuff. Um, And also from the design world of how we create goods and services that meet humans' needs or perhaps even manipulate them. Um, Obviously, I'm more interested in the critiquing side of it rather than doing it. And so combined, I created this method that assists designers and non-designers in going through a process of understanding complex problems um, with the goal of um, looking at systems interventions and designing solutions that fit the size of the problem. So in a nutshell, the disruptive design method is a scaffolding. Like when you're building a building, you have to put up this exterior skeleton to kind of provide the support on the outside so that when you put the building up, there's that structure and then you take it down, the building remains. So this is how I see it. It's like a mental structure to learn how to think in a more dynamic and complex way. And so it involves three stages, um, keeping with my construction metaphor, it's a mining, landscaping and building. And in the mining phase, we kind of start there where we want to deeply understand the complexities of the problem. And here we really actively suspend the need to solve. And I say that because design thinking and some other um, popularized approaches to innovation, whilst great, do tend to rush to the solution versus really understanding the nuances of the problem at hand. And so we kind of use different tools from life cycle thinking, which is similar to the whole paper versus plastic, understanding how materials and, and, and decisions impact our lives, as well as systems thinking we kind of understand the problem. Then we move to the landscaping phase, which is like, you know, when you're in an airplane, remember the days when we took airplanes and you would look down and you would get this bird's eye view of the landscape. Mm -hmm. So that's what that goal is. You put all the pieces together that you've ferreted out in the mining phase and you get this perspective shift. Um, And from that, you identify where or how you could intervene in this system to make the appropriate change, but within critically your sphere of influence, because from teaching like tens of thousands of people how to think creatively, I keep encountering this problem where people try to deflect responsibility, even if with the best intentions, out to these big parts of the system that they often have no control or agency over. Like people say we need regulation or we need education. And these two things, I call them the bookends of, of change. They are amazing tools, but we don't all have those tools available to us, right? We're right. not all necessarily curriculum designers or perhaps policy creators. But within those two bookends, there's a whole myriad of titles (laughs) that we could, you know, perhaps write the story of. And so being able to identify what each individual with whatever resources they have um, can apply to help disrupt the status quo of an unsustainable system 
And then from that, we build solutions. So it's like you put your little, you put your little um, hotels on the X marts the spot <laughs> and see what kind of change you can make. And, and that latter part is really using more of a traditional, the building phase uses more of a traditional design approach, but it's designed for non-designers. So we use sustainable design as well as circular principles to kind of create solutions that help to address some of the big complex problems that, you know, we've tried to um, understand through the method. Yeah, I love this because when I was reading about this, I was thinking about how useful it is, this this concept, this flow, this shifting of the way people are thinking and looking at things is so useful in business, right? And I know you're probably looking at it, okay, like people don't have to travel now and like that kind of sustainability aspect. I'm actually just thinking about the way in which we we think, our thought process and how it just opens up so many doors and can let you see so many things that you know, we're not seeing because we're so sort of tunnel vision. We're so sort of pushed through the system. We're so, you know, taught to thought a certain, you know, think so a certain way. I have way, a whole right? philosophy or theory on this. Okay. Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So humans, one of the magical things about being a human, other than having language and thumbs is that we stand upright. Okay. So we start life off actually usually on our backs, you know, looking up at the sky or then, you know, on our little chubby tummies kind of getting around <laughs> on our little arms and legs. And eventually we figure out how to stand up, right? We grow tall, we grow further away from the ground and we become focused on the linear plane in front of us. This one, you know, of course we live in a 3D world, but we're looking at the world from this kind of one, one vantage point, you know, okay. rarely do we climb trees as an adult or, you know, dig in the dirt like we did as a kid. And I think that in this process of growing up and taking on the responsibilities of adulthood and life, we lose a little bit of our kind of uh, chaotic thinking and understanding of the world. And we focus on that horizon line. Like we focus mm. on, like you're saying this myopic, you know, we kind of become tunnel vision on the future, on our lives and da, 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 which is important. You know, we need to plan, we need to be connected to our, we need to be responsible for our actions, blah, blah, blah. But the issue here is we live in this like really complicated, beautiful, chaotic, three-dimensional world with all of these nuances and deeply interconnected systems, whether it be our social systems or our natural systems. And we don't necessarily have that at the forefront of our mind in making decisions, be it like what to eat for dinner or what you're going to do for your KPIs in your startup, right? Right, right. So for me, this tool that I talk about is being able to think through the telescope and the microscope. So if you look through a telescope, you can see that there's literally the infinite possibility of the universe speckled in, you know, a quadrillion unknown stars that could or could not hold life, you know, this kind of wonderment about the possibility of, of what's up there. But if you go and look through a microscope, right, this tiny space that you can control, you can see that the image in the microscope and the image in the telescope are very similar. They're just a, a mirror of themselves. You know, like if you looked at a little drop of water, you would see all these little guys floating around infinite possibility of life inside a tiny little drop gotcha. of water. Yeah. And so you can, if you can move through thinking of these scales, then you can start to really um, break out of those silos of thinking about the world in this kind of one dimensional linear way and our role in the world. Because, you know, I also think that as humans, we have achieved so much. We really have created an incredible impact on the world, both good and bad. And that gives a, a huge amount of responsibility and opportunity at the same time, right? Like that's really the crux of what we're in right now is like, what are we going to do with all of this incredible wealth we've created in both technology and money and culture yeah. and society? And how are we going to use the knowledge of the impacts of our actions, the knowledge of the past, 
the potential of the future to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes twice and we don't continue to like destroy the systems that we need to sustain us. So, you know, that's kind of why I think businesses are a really good point of intervention Mm. because I think we are seeing a massive cultural transformation in businesses where not only are workers, employees demanding that companies have be the ethical and, and morally appropriate organizations that they themselves want. And we're seeing that with a, a generational shift between baby boomers and millennials. But we're also seeing this the harsh reality of like a riskier climate, you know, infrastructure being more vulnerable. And so there's pressure from multiple perspectives. And I think that's breeding a lot of innovation and opportunity for positive transformation. And I think that's happened as a result of COVID as well. Like there's yeah. been a, a lot of like, okay, we can change. Rapid change, right? Like, hold <laughs> oh, wait, now that we have to, let's think about this. Right, totally. Right. In fact, you actually created a new program, right? The, to, designed to support yeah, businesses. Yeah, Tell just, me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I've run this school called the Unschool of Disruptive Design for a f- yeah, like six or seven years now. And we, through that school, we often teach people like yourself or anybody. Usually we call it uh, we call it the school for quitters as a joke because most people who come have like quit some really great job. <laughs> like I love it. A furious state of reckoning around <laughs> that their moral compass is not aligned or whatever. And so they come to the end school to learn how to do all this stuff, like the disruptive design method. And we run programs all over the world and we have a really cool growing community of people of all different types of um, cultures and and um professions. Um, but I also started to notice, um, I mean, I've been doing sustainability for like 20 years now, um, the demand for or individuals within organizations paid for and supported by their companies for yeah. them to be upskilled, to be able to provide these kinds of services, be it circular economy, business transformation, or sustainable design and product development, or even just environmental impact assessment, like how do we measure our carbon impact and make changes, right? What is a scope three emission? So taking all of that on board, I uh, decided to yeah design a whole new program that was specifically for people within any size or shaped organization to learn it's kind of boring. I'm not going to lie, like environmental management systems and how they work and what regulations there are and how to do an environmental impact assessment on your waste, energy and water, and then how to design experiences that create um, the right kind of communication to your customers so that you can actually grow positively through sustainability. Some of it's boring, some of it's really fascinating, but putting it all together, yeah, I created this like 101 to 103 part series of like, this is how you do this shit. This is how you use sustainability yes. as a as a <laughs> catalyst for innovation and positive change within any size organization. So yeah, this is I'm still I'm still working on it. We've still got two awesome. more programs to finish up. But yeah, we've been running some um group workshops on it and it's really great to see the feedback. I had one guy say to me the other day, he's like, so this is actually really complicated, but really interesting. <laughs> like, Welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So actually, since you might have a bit of a captive audience here, um, why don't you tell me, as if I'm an executive who is a decision maker in a mid-sized company or even large company, um, what would be the benefit? Like, why, why would I do this? Other than interest, interesting, if I'm going to go hire out someone and be like, oh my God, is my building lead certified? Like, you know, like, you know, tell me what, what my executive team is going to get out of this and why it's super important. Well, so the way I've broken down the different impact areas that businesses have is into three kind of 
uh, channels. So one is operational, which is your nitty gritty of your energy, waste, water, infrastructure, procurement, and travel. So the six areas that we all companies, even I run small companies, they still have those impacts. We buy energy, we have carbon emissions, and there's a simple auditing process where you can understand how to basically cut costs as well, because this is about understanding your operational uh, impacts and then uh, make good decisions develop policies um, that help align the organization as well as set clear goals and targets. So if it's uh, becoming a zero waste uh, operation or whether it's um, reducing your carbon emissions or buying them back. So I cover all of that, which is essentially like the basic understanding of what impacts both financial and environmental your actions as a business have. That's that's the kind of like level one, (laughs) (laughs) which has a fiscal and cultural benefit. The next one is, so you have operational and then you have product. At the product level, a lot of companies are creating products and services that fit within a supply chain, whether you're selling Mm -hmm. to an end user, a customer like you or I, or whether you're selling um, a product that fits within a supply chain. So you're an agricultural producer or uh, you're, you know, plastics manufacturer for packaging, whatever it is. Ultimately, you are part of a complex supply chain and there are lots of sustainability initiatives that can occur across that to not only reduce the environmental, but also social and economic burdens of not understanding your supply chain. So in this kind of product level, you look at supply chain sustainability, mapping and exploring all of the different touch points and redesigning that. So it's more like a service design, experience design for how you deliver products and value into the economy. So here you have a lot of opportunities to not only gain a clearer understanding, that landscaping perspective of what's going on, how you're interacting with the broader uh, industry that you're part of, but also how to develop the right communication, the right engagement, and also the right responsibility charters around being an ethical and sustainable member of the supply chain, which is increasingly important. We have the global compact, the UN global compact. We have obviously the sustainable development goals. So being able to report on these things as part of corporate social responsibility is is so important. But aside from that, we also have the opportunity to innovate through creating new products and services that are circular and sustainable, meaning that they add more value than they take from the system. And then the last phase is the experiential side. So we have operation, Uh, product and experience. And experience is not just the services that you have, but it's the whole package of understanding that your customer or your stakeholders gain from interacting with your sustainable business or organization. And that involves like if you're a hotel, for example, all of the touch points of experience, of wayfinding, of navigating, you know, every company has an element of directing their customer through their website, through their store, through their product usage. And there are so many opportunities to optimize that, to not only create a stronger relationship with the customer and the product, but to help influence their behavior, whether it be in the use phase or the end of life. So all of those things put together create this pathway from not understanding perhaps your general operationals through to your product and your experiential impacts, but to using that understanding to actually build truly like innovative, value-added, unique and disruptive products and services in your industry. And in a time of great disruption, be it COVID or also like rapid startup or technological innovation, being ahead of the game is critical here. And I, I have absolutely no reservations in saying that, sustainability, the social, economic and environmental impact of your actions 
as a parameter for innovation is one of the most exciting and interesting and valuable things to invest in right now because it, parameters are what creates the right environment for um, innovative outcomes, right? And so that's really what we're trying to create here is this, this desire for individuals within companies and organizations to basically look at what they're doing and go, we can do this better. We can make it better for our customers. We can make it better for the planet. We can make more money, have better relationships, be a more ethical and sustainable company. And I mean, what company in their right mind would not agree to that? Do you know what I mean? Right, <laughs> of right. course, there are some, but they won't last the decade. They just won't. Right. Right now, you um, had previously mentioned, you just briefly touched upon the fact that, you know, obviously we're going through COVID. That's forcing a lot of, of rapid change right now in, in a lot of these businesses. But you actually just released a report on the future of sustainability in the workplace. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I T- spent Tom- basically all of COVID <laughs> doing a research project. <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, so actually this was commissioned by an intranet company called Unily that provides really quite beautiful internal company communication platforms. And I'd never heard of them before they reached out and asked me just before COVID, like in January, they're like, hey, what's the future of the workplace in an age of climate change and sustainability? I was like, what a great project. And then COVID hit. And I was like, FYI, <laughs> I feel I'm going to have to include the impact of basically the entire world shutting down for five months. Right. So it became a really interesting time to be looking at not only the data on like how is climate change affecting the way we work, um, whether it be in offices or out in fields or in, in factories and, and stuff like that, but also how these disruptive forces of, of our time influence how we work and what we do mm. in our workplaces and our businesses. And so the report, um, which is out and it's freely available, um, essentially tracks this path of looking at the mega trends of this decade. So it's great because all these reports came out in like late 2019 that were like the next decade. None of them <laughs> were like COVID. <laughs> so reading them after COVID had hit, it was like, oh, bless our cotton socks. Anyway, but a lot of them did predict some big disruptive forces, like whether it be security, like, you know, perhaps uh, wars, which God forbid that ever happens, but also the idea of like global pandemics. It's kind of been, the writing's been on the wall for a while, but not with the specificity of what would happen in the cases of of what we have experienced. Like this, I think was quite um, shocking to most of us. But anyway, the thing is, is that when I looked at these mega trends and I looked, I overlaid these mega trends with the sustainability trends that are happening. So resource shortages, you've got some of the biggest players in the finance sector, like BlackRock, demanding that people divest from coal and other polluting sources. You had all these factors playing. I kind of wanted to see from a big picture perspective, what are the the forces that are going to drive this kind of innovation and change in the workplace, both in a positive and perhaps even a concerning way. And so I developed these, you know, 12 driving forces around how we build our workplaces, the culture of our workplaces, as well as the infrastructure, so the buildings and the footprints that are changing and how the workplace, the actual physical assets of our workplace will change, how technologies influence that. And so it has a kind of marrying of climate change, COVID, and this general business transformation that's going on. And, and at the end, I wrote a... Um, uh, uh, what's it called? Like a, it's called a diagnostic toolkit, but basically it's a quiz that okay. tracks, uh, you Love can it. respond to these questions and then basically fit into a bucket of where you're at in a journey of responding to these, these kind of driving forces and then a pathway of how to kind of navigate your way out of it. So, yeah, I mean, I hoped that in creating this, it was, um, 
I was able to not only kind of capture this crazy time, like living in the middle of a social experiment, not even a social, but like a cultural change experiment, but also really see how forces, these forces just come along and they just completely yeah. whirlwind affect us all um, in, in equally measure positive and negative ways. Because right, yes, right. for every, you know, ton of carbon that's been sucked out of the atmosphere as a result of us not flying, you know, you have uh, all sorts of unintended consequences in regards to people losing their job and their yeah. livelihoods and ending up in poverty. And we know that people who can't meet their basic needs, cultures where we don't have social nets and safety security, we have all sorts of other unintended consequences yeah. as a society. So, you know, you kind of have to look at it from the full picture um, when you're trying to understand how to how to move forward, right? How to get us to a better place, because that should be always our goal, right? Absolutely. Now, yeah. just for the listeners, we're going to post the link uh, to your report in the description. Mm -hmm. But for those who are driving around, have downloaded this, where can they find this report? Yeah, so you can just find it from our website, disruptdesign.co um, or unschools.co. Yeah, it's easy. You can just click through. There's lots of links. It's the the future of, it's called the decade of disruption, the future of workplace sustainability. Um, yeah, I'm sure you can also Google it too. Uh, <laughs> and you can find as well on, on both of those sites, disrupt or unschools both.co uh, links to any of these uh, classes and courses that I'm talking about. And for those of you listening who are in a small organization and don't have money to invest other than the free uh, report that I mentioned, we also have a bunch of free resources around systems change and sustainability. So there's a whole redesign toolkit for doing the circular product redesign. I've also designed a whole post-disposable kind of activation toolkit, which looks at like fashion waste and, and uh, plastic packaging. So especially if you're an educator or you're interested in like creating a design challenge for your team, there's lots of tools and stuff there you can grab. You know, my goal is to help make more change. So wherever I can make content free, I do. And there's actually a free toolkit that I produced in collaboration with Oxfam on the disruptive design method and how to facilitate a workshop around creating campaigns for affecting change. So that's all on my website for free and, and you can grab awesome. that and, and awesome. have What's Oxfam? What's Oxfam? Oxfam is the international charity. Oxfam yeah. International. It's quite a large, uh, it's quite a large <laughs> human rights charity. <laughs> and the listeners again get to learn how I live under even a bigger rock. <laughs> right. I think they operate a lot in Southeast Asia, but they're based out of the UK and they do a lot around human rights and um, oh, yeah. democracy and okay. um, yeah, they, the, the project that we worked on was around digital um, advocacy because okay. in a lot of Southeast Asian countries, there's not a lot of uh, freedom of speech yeah. in the digital arena. And so we were looking at helping to create um, awareness and advocacy around that because as we know, you know, the internet can be an incredible tool of, of liberation and oppression. And so we yeah. were trying to help uh, enable that. <laughs> well, apparently so in this country, because uh, I had to unplug certain things in my house and reconnect them straight to the internet because it kept getting shut down. I wonder why, right before the elections. <laughs> I have a whole <sighs> rant about internet connected devices. I must say, <laughs> when I was in design school, like 15, 16, I don't know how many years ago now, and they gave us a brief to design an internet-connected device, I remember going, this is stupid. Who's going to want a refrigerator that tells you what to buy? <laughs> Who's going to want a toilet that measures your poop? I mean, like, seriously, it's like, this is pathetic. But now everybody wants some weird thing like this. You know that. I, I know, and I wonder about this. Then I put my social scientist brain on, and I think about, like, um, the trend. So it's like, do you remember Tamagotchis? Do you remember Google Glasses? Do you remember the technology that was a fad that faded out because people realized that 
you know, sometimes these things create more problems than they're worth. And I feel like sometimes these internet connected devices, whilst they do do time saving and they do make it easier for us to, you know, watch what our dogs do during the day whilst we're, <laughs> we're out <laughs> um, to spy on our furry friends and <laughs> to get machines to play us jazz. I find it really funny because I have an Australian accent. So if I'm ever speaking to one of my friends, internet connected to like Alexa's or whatever, it never tells me what I want. Like it never understands <laughs> me properly. And I've seen that on like, um, you know, someone with a strong British Cockney accent, like asking Amazon's uh, thing to do its thing for it. And it doesn't get it. And it's like <laughs> swearing at it. And like, you know, so it That's is awesome. funny. The user experience design of these things can make or break them. But yeah, I mean, I just think that, you know, technology is an amazing tool. And I, I think that we have so many opportunities with any tool to use it well, or to use it yeah. as a, as an oppressive device. And I think that whilst, you know, we all just have to make decisions about what works for us in our lifestyle. And it's a little bit like the whole digital detox movement. I feel like most people these days want to be away from their screens, not in front <laughs> of them more. I have that even like after months of doing a lot of video calls and things, you know, right. I feel like my away from screen time is so precious. Yeah. Um, and that's some, you know, I think that's part of our cultural changes that happen. Like we have experiences we try them out and then we decide if they're, they're worth us keeping or not. So that's let's funny, see. I, I think a lot of people, are, uh, especially here in Manhattan at first with COVID, they're probably like, yeah, I don't have to travel. Like I'm going to, and then all of a sudden they're like, wait, I, I feel like I'm working more. Like I'm always in front oh, of this I'm thing. Right. Now, yeah. Sure. And there's no delineation between the space of work. Yeah. Even yeah, though I've always to. worked from home um, because I've always traveled so much and I yeah. really appreciated in the beginning, not traveling because mm -hmm. I have, like this completely opposite life experience. But now I'm like, I miss people. Like I yeah. miss physical random conversations with like the, the dude at the, the airport when I'm doing my security check-in. Like I just miss <laughs> the human interaction that I'm no longer getting. And I was thinking about how much in between the edge interaction of life, whether in between meeting someone offering you a coffee when you arrive yeah. at a place, how much that actually gives us a sense of community and connection and joy. Yeah. And I really started to think about that recently because I miss those little in-between moments. Yeah. How good are you at just like reaching out, like purposely, intentionally reaching out to people for non-work, like just your friends, your family, or just five minutes or. I have schedules with, uh, because I live overseas yeah. as well. I mean, I have friends, okay. I've lived in the U S I live in London now. I used to live in Portugal on a farm and I have a friends and family in Australia. And so, I mean, like every time so yeah. <laughs> and I have a lot of scattered friends and I'm pretty good at having like a routine now, ever since COVID, most of my close friends and family, we have like a, a either a formal routine of like a weekly catch up or right. informally checking in on each other. And right. especially as the lockdowns come in, right? Like, so all of my friends and family in Melbourne that I was checking in a lot more with them during their hundred days of lockdown. And now I've gone into lockdown, they're <laughs> checking in more with me, you know? So yeah, I good. think that as we see these waves of lock re lockdowns happen, that's what I think we need to do is just keep an eye on people. But yeah, I I'm not very good at delineating. I love my work. I truly yeah. have like the most profound drive and passion for helping anyone anywhere on the planet care about the planet because it's the only one we've got and you know everyone has to breathe and it's fucking great and there's butterflies and like I don't want to move to Mars and you know I like kids and I look at their innocent little faces and I think we gotta do something right. so like I have a lot of drive and motivation um so it's it's not it's more so 
the deficit of human human interaction to kind of counteract the the energy that you have to invest in in you know building change and whether that be doing a startup or solving a problem in your work you know it's that's energy and so you, the the other interaction with humans really helps kind of reestablish that yeah so. for sure for sure all right last thought anything you want to leave our audience with maybe give us some of the the sort of green myths that we really think that we're doing well and maybe we're not um, or something else Sure. Well, I mean, it's great to always question the world around you because um, the things that we think are one thing can often be something else, which we've seen a lot of uh, recently. (laughs) But when it comes to the material world, there's a lot of like hidden things about them, right? So nearly everything in our lives has come from nature at some point. You cannot make matter from nothing. And so uh, we can kind of do an audit of our material lives, seeing the relationships that the paper has to the forest or the metal has to the mining. Um, and what I think is so important is seeing the full life of things changes the way you value them. You know, like the more, it's like a human, the more you understand them, the more you respect their nuances and, you know, something that might've annoyed you. Once you hear the story of why someone is a particular way, you have more empathy or respect for them. And I feel that's the same with, with our material world is that the more we kind of scratch below the surface, we can see how complicated these lives are of these products. So like our technology, you know, the, yeah. the, the massive issue with um, all of the rare minerals that are being exploited to create the technology that we have. And then the end of life issues with the e-waste processing and um, all of the human lives that are impacted so negatively because of that. And also it's just kind of like awakens us to the, the, um, the, the kind of like spidery tentacles that our material world right. has on the planet. And so I feel like the more we can be, um, inquiring into that and curious and help, it helps change the way we respect and value things. And so then maybe you'll get your phone repaired next time you break it, which is what I just did recently, rather than getting a new one. Um, because with respect comes admiration, comes understanding. And I think all of these tools, especially, you know, you're in the U S and we know it's a very divided country right now, having lived in the U S for many years, and living myself in in many countries that are divided, like it's, you know, it seems to be the age to do so. There's so much opportunity for building bridges of understanding, the more not only dialogue, but um, yeah, curiosity and questions. The more we ask questions, the more we understand, the more we gain a perspective shift, the more agency we have to be, um, to think in that 3D way I was talking about, like, you know, I, I think that one of the biggest deficits that we have as a culture is that we don't question things enough about um, about how they came to be and what they will be in the end. That we, yes, we we question the world, like, do we believe in our government and what they're telling us? And do we worry about when our electric devices get turned off automatically? But what about how um, our actions are having wider scale impacts on people's lives through the supply chains and things? I know it's not as sexy, but it's equally as important. So yeah, I think, I think the big questions that we have right now is around how to design a world that works better for all of us. So I think all of your listeners would agree, even if you perhaps aren't necessarily switched on to environmental or social issues in your day-to-day life, you would agree that you want to have a world that works better tomorrow and the next day. You want to have a world for your kids that is like as beautiful with as many opportunities, if not more. And that requires work. We have to design that. Like we have to create the future we want to live in. And the biggest act of rebellion that anyone can do right now is to imagine and work towards a future that is always better than the past. 
And so that requires us to have hope and optimism and creativity and to learn from the past to be able to design a better future. I love it. I love it. I love your energy. I love your passion. And I I thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. It was great to chat with you. So that is it for this week. Thank you for joining me. And I hope that you enjoyed today's show. If so, don't forget to rate it. If you guys have a pressing question, feel free to tweet me at CS Thrive uh, or on Instagram at Thrive Tribe 3.14159. Again, I know that's a weird one. It's just pi. So it's three, it's Thrive underscore Tribe underscore 3.14159. Or of course, you can join me in Facebook at my free group, which is Thrive Tribe Global. If you just search groups and you enter in Thrive Tribe Global, you should see us there um, and you can join it for free. Uh, I answer your questions in there, but if you guys send me a question through there, I will be sure to answer it here on this podcast. And as always, if you're ever interested in advertising on the show, please contact the Believe Network at Believe, B-L-E-A-V, at believe.com. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.